0: Main Street to Wall Street, global business celebrity and former Fortune 100 C-Suite executive Jeffrey Hazlett takes you inside the good, the bad, and the ugly of businesses today. Saddle up. It's time for All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett.
1: As we've all experienced, the way we do business, work as a team, and daily interactions has drastically changed. As we work towards the new norm, how do we make working together more effective and build stronger ties along the way? That's the big question. And my guest today is here to help leaders strengthen connections while having a more productive team. Dr. Betty Johnson is president of Bridging the Difference and author of Making Virtual Work, How to Build Performance and Relationships. Dr. Betty, welcome to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett.
2: Hello. It's so nice to be here, Jeffrey. Thank you for having me.
1: And we're virtual too, and it works. (laughs) Yes, it does. Let me ask you the first question. We were forced to move to a virtual way of doing business to now having to work in what we call a hybrid world. In order to be successful as leaders, we need to make this an effective pivot. What's the biggest reason teams and leaders are struggling to make the hybrid system work?
2: Well, I think the struggle comes from resistance, in a word. It is here to stay, despite our desire, many people's desire to have everybody back in the office and return to the old days with which we were so comfortable, especially leaders, executives, are very comfortable in the in-person environment. It's so familiar, and this is the way we've learned to lead, is by being able to make those spontaneous in-person connections with people. So there's a reason why we miss everybody being all together. And of course, there are also some compelling tax reasons why you want all those backsides in seats. But it's not realistic. Not this year, not next year, not ever. And the reason I say that is because globally distributed teams have been here for a while. We just got dissatisfied with that dynamic when it became pervasive and Those who lived in the same city as us were now also virtual. The reason we became so dissatisfied, I maintain, is because we were trying to apply those norms with which we as leaders were so comfortable in a different context, and those norms failed us. So we wore people out, we created disenfranchisement, we contributed to the big quit, which is now what many of my clients are calling the great resignation. Others call it the great reshuffle, but at the end of the day, what happens to me as an executive is people quit and I have to replace them. So this churn of talent is real and it's not going away either, even with a recession because people have found that they can bargain for the work environment that they choose. So it's up to us as leaders to be adaptive. You know, Ron Ron Heifetz has been banging the table on adaptive leadership for some time now. And here we have the perfect Petri dish for adaptive leadership. So let's start changing up the composition of what's in that dish and get better results.
1: Well, I I'm, I'm, I'm wanna ask myself, can I teach an old dog new tricks? I mean, I like the way we're working today, meaning virtual from different offices. I've been doing it all my career. I've never, even though I've had an office, I'm never hardly there and I've always done it virtually, but I do love working from home. And I'm even seeing some of the major, major, you know, corporation executives saying they're not going back into the office full time at least. So can we teach an old dog new tricks?
2: Well, I, so i consider myself an old dog right i've been around the block a few times and i'm guessing from your comment that you have as well absolutely and if i can learn new tricks anyone can yeah what what we need is a different motivation for those new tricks and so that's a big part of what my book is about what is your motivation as a leader is your motivation to control or enable is Mm. your motivation to feel good about you And your status and your ability to make decisions or is your motivation to enhance the capabilities of your people to do their work is your motivation to hog leadership or is your motivation to distribute it, you know this is really all about getting from where you want to be sorry, from where you are now to where you want to be. And we know, study after study shows us, this is not by just simply employing tactics. It's about changing up the way you think about things.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's getting to the core and the source of who you are and the way you want to operate. You know, everybody's calling this like the great resignation. You kind of mentioned that. I look at it as the great transformation, meaning it, you know, if we look at it as a great resignation, we're almost saying we lost. Something's, someone loses here. It's not good. Someone loses, someone wins. In my opinion, this is really a great transformation. This is just a different way of doing it. And we're getting to a, a holistic kind of way of doing it, a better way of doing it, and still getting the results that we want and sometimes better.
2: I completely agree with you. And what I like about the way you're framing this is the phrase the great resignation or the big quit or the great reshuffle or whatever we want to call it um when we use use that language we disempower ourselves right we're saying i can't control this and i'm here to say you can you can absolutely influence what you're experiencing in terms of turnover you and how you leave has everything to do with whether you keep your people i mean sure there are going to people there are people who will jump for a bigger pay increase But when they go to a place where they don't experience the kind of leadership that they did with you that they so enjoyed, where they thrived, they come back.
1: Yeah, we lost a few people um, toward the end of COVID, but that was a normal kind of thing. But out of our team, it was not not a major resignation like I've seen with other companies. And I, I kind of pride our team in doing that and how we kind of grasp onto the virtual side, team meetings, a little bit of, you know, water cooler stuff, which gets me to this next question. How can we stop wasting time in video meetings without sacrificing work relationships?
2: Well, that's the subject of a 276-page academic research paper and an 85-page book that boils it down. But really, I, I guess the, the way I can be most helpful to your listeners is to say, there are two things that you really need to do. They, these, are, these are table stakes. And if you're not doing them, you need to start now. The first is you need to have a target outcome every time you call a meeting and don't keep it to yourself. Put it in the subject line of the invite. If you're calling a meeting and you in the subject line, you say weekly team meeting, you're failing. And here's why you're not showing your people how they need to come to the meeting, what to get ready for, how to positively anticipate this is going to be a good meeting. This is going to be a useful um, investment of my time and I am going to speak and be heard. So whatever that target outcome is, whether it is to make some decisions about how to mitigate risks, whether it is to discuss and decide upon What our work in the office rule is going to be put that what's going to be accomplished in the meeting in the subject line so people know A, what are they saying yes to when they accept your invitation and then B, when they're racing from the previous meeting into your meeting, what do they need to be teed up. To talk about, ready to problem solve too. You know Marty Seligman, and when he names the five dimensions for well being, accomplishment is the fifth of his PERMA model. But even Martin Seligman, <laughs> you know rock star of well being, says for me, accomplishment trumps everything. It is what I need to what I need to experience the most in order to be healthy psychologically. So tee people up for that accomplishment. And the second thing is is really an inverse practice, counterintuitive. And that is to make time for small talk right at the front of your agenda. Put it in the agenda. My research participants say they want 10 minutes of small talk. Now, that's if it's a 20-minute meeting or an hour-long meeting. Why? Because if we don't make space for people to authentically connect with each other in a way that's not structured or orchestrated, you know, these round robin check ins, that's not small talk, that's Mm -hmm. the leader being the puppet master and staying at the center as the hub with other people being spokes, we're talking about an integrated conversation where anybody who wants to chime in on their weekend their vacation plans, or what's happening in the world or this country in terms of um, the things that are on their mind. When you create, carve out space in your agenda for that, watch how on time people will show up because they're craving authentic connection. And then for people who are kind of like me, so driven by accomplishment, that small talk drives them crazy. Well, they can show up a few minutes late, right? Get that last email out the door and then show up for the last few minutes of small talk so it gives this leeway for people to arrive late without being in, disrupting the meeting flow. It gives people who need social connection. Some people need it more than others. It gives them a place to have it. And here's the, a little tidbit that I just find fascinating. Those who are self-described as introverts benefit more from that 10 minutes of small talk than extroverts do. Wow! So think about this. When you're an introvert, you process information internally. So when we are in the business of a meeting, I'm, I'm soaking up all this information, what I'm hearing, what I'm reading, and I'm trying to make sense of it so that I can then ask a question. It takes me longer than the extroverts.
1: Well, so speaking of small talk, I want to get into some big talk. Let me take a quick break, and I'll be right yeah, back sure. after this message. Hey, we are back, and I'm talking with Dr. Betty Johnson, president of Bridging the Difference, and the author of Making Virtual Work, How to Build Performance and Relationships. So we we're talking about small talk and the need for that in organizations. And I like the fact that you said some people who aren't into it, don't want to participate, can come a little late. It seems like we're doing some of those things. I got to change those, uh, those weekly meetings, because it does say weekly meetings or team meetings. So we need to yes. make sure. But we always put the conditions of satisfaction of what we're going to talk about in the meeting. So at least we're doing some of that right. c-suite radio so dr betty we're always needing to evolve how should leaders rethink what engagement is in a meeting because sometimes i get frustrated you know well i'll ask a question and everybody just sits there for a little bit you know and then someone takes a spark and goes first and then you know so how can i re- reset the engagement
2: well, there are two things with this as well. So the first is, let's get a common definition of engagement. Mahai, mm-hmm. who coined the term flow, says engagement is you are so into the work that you lose your sense of time. You're so enjoying what's happening that you're all in. So there's mm-hmm. no temptation to multitask because you're loving it. So we need to create that kind of engagement rather than measuring engagement as to whether people have their camera on and they're staring at it right? That's not engagement. That's performance. That's performing arts. That's being on stage and striving to create an impression versus truly being engaged in the work. And the way that we create engagement in the work is we don't just tell people this is what we're going to talk about. We craft an agenda in the form of questions and we assign each question in the agenda to the attendee who has the most subject matter expertise on that question. When you do that, you distribute the leadership responsibility of the meeting and you say to people, here's an invitation. I want you to talk about this particular question that we need an answer to in order to hit that target outcome that's in the calendar invite. Two what about a
1: leader. Let me ask you a question about a leader because I, you know, I'm the chairman CEO, but I don't usually lead the meetings. I let other people lead the meetings. Is that a good thing, bad thing? What?
2: Well, I think it depends on how the CEO is thinking about letting other people lead. In other words, are you providing the example that if we don't have a target outcome for this meeting, we're not having a meeting?
1: We don't that's that's a definite for my meetings. Like what right? is the purpose? We usually talk about what is the purpose of the meeting right up front so we all know You know, we do our small talk. We do a lot of that. And then all of a sudden, so, well, we got it. Let's get moving. And then we usually say, "Okay, what's the purpose of the meeting? So we all know where we're coming from. Usually that's stated ahead of time. But, you know, not everybody reads everything. Not everybody pays attention.
2: Well, so I want to really just dig in on this. What is our purpose? Where are we coming from is one thing. A target outcome is where are we going and Mm -hmm. where are the goalposts Mm -hmm. on this football field? how will we know when we have a touchdown? So having that goal that in this meeting we are going to hit this target outcome gives people a way to know what contributions are relevant and what contributions aren't. How should the meeting be designed? How should it not be designed? Who should be there? Who gets a buy? It doesn't have to be at this weekly meeting because they're not going to be contributing. So that nuance between purpose and target outcome is absolutely essential, and it's looked over by most people.
1: Yeah. Let me ask you a question because everybody's done this, but I want to talk about multitasking. What's the impact of multitasking during a meeting? Now, I do my best never to do it during an interview, but sometimes we do do it during the meeting. We check our phone. We see an email. We respond to a text real quick. What's the impact of that?
2: The impact of multitasking uh, can be really positive or negative. I think the bigger question is, how do we keep people from doing the negative kind of multitasking? <laughs> right? So multitasking can be really good. If, if I'm making a note, it looks as if I'm disengaged, right? I'm doing it right now. I'm making a note because yeah. I'm going to remember something. And so that's not disengagement. That's thinking. And many, many people must look away from the visual distraction, the animation to look down to a quiet place and make a note. It's how they process. So point one, don't think people are disengaged just because they're looking down. It doesn't mean they're necessarily checking their cell phone. The second thing is, if the conversation is useful to them, they will not do the useless multitasking activity. Because they don't want to miss anything, so the right. answer to how to avoid that disruptive multitasking is: if someone, if someone's contributions aren't essential to the meeting, and what they're going to hear from other people is not essential to their job, find another way to get their voice in the room. Don't have them attend an hour meeting and speak for five minutes.
1: Yeah, and the, you know the other thing I can remember sitting in a meeting with a client, a very, very well-known individual everybody's a world world renowned expert and was doing some work with him and his team. And I remember I was taking notes on my computer while I was sitting there at the conference room and he yelled at me and said, shut that computer down. And I said, I'm taking notes. He said, you are not shut the computer down. I shut the computer down and I I fired the client on the spot and left, you know, because again, didn't respect the way that I needed to take notes, the way I wanted to do it, because I don't write things on paper anymore and so forth. I think it's interesting. Where where does, this gets into the balance of power, maybe a balance of responsibility for the meeting experience. Who does it reside in? And, And whether it's a meeting by video, a conference call or in person, who does that responsibility really reside? The
2: person who initiates the meeting and is the facilitator or the person who kicks it off, the one who's responsible for crafting at least the draft agenda, they are responsible for setting the stage and setting the stage is everything. If you think of a meeting as a social construct, which Helen Schwartzman back in 1986 made a case for this, you know, we show up and we think it's a work tool and maybe it's that, but it's really a social construct where there are these tacit agreements in play. And when people do things that offend us, we get upset. And when people do things that make us feel good, oh, we wanna work with them more, it's social. So the way you set the stage for this social encounter is you do things like putting the target outcome in the invite, deciding who needs to be there and who doesn't to hit that target, crafting your agenda in the form of questions. And here's the thing, if you don't have any questions, you don't have a meeting, you have a big fat tail. So record yourself and send it out instead of wasting people's um, synchronous time, right? So the responsibility lies with that person. And then if you do a good job in setting the stage your meeting attendees will be able to come and share the ownership of what happens in the meeting. But there are some things you need to do. And that's what's in the recipe in my book.
1: All right. Let's take a quick, let's take another quick break and I'll be right back after this message. Hey, we are back and we're talking with Dr. Betty Johnson, all about doing good meetings.
0: This episode is brought to you by Bumble.
1: I got time for two quick questions. So the first one I want to do is what should all companies make sure to incorporate when planning virtual and hybrid meetings? So the most impactful and beneficial for everyone, what's the the most important piece of that?
2: The most important piece of that is to have empathy. So this is your your North Star. And empathy in, in this context means you understand how your people are feeling cognitively. And then you also relate to it emotionally, their feelings, not yours. Oh, I feel the same as you. No, you don't feel the same as me, right? We all feel differently. So let it resonate, but don't try to mimic it. This is impossible. And then design your meetings so that you're giving people what they need for that emotional state. Now, this just sounds very kumbaya and woo woo and you know too soft and I don't have time for that but I'm insisting that you do have time because it's a time saver you do have time because it reduces your turnover so it's that empathy that's really the cornerstone of that 85 page book what does empathy look like in the remote and hybrid meeting context what exactly do you do it's not rocket science but it will change up what happens in your meetings and what happens after
1: Yeah, it'll also turn you from the great, uh, great resignation into the great transformation. I'll guarantee you that if you do that. All right, one last quick question, 30 seconds left to go. What is the one thing leaders should start implementing today to increase productivity and build stronger team bonds besides empathy?
2: Well, it all starts with empathy. So it's not just besides, it's embedded. I would say because cameras are so contentious, pull your team and find out how they feel about camera use. Start Mm -hmm. there to meet their needs. If people don't want cameras on, if they don't think they're essential to the meeting, make them optional.
1: Yeah. That's interesting. Well, it's tough to do if you're a TV company you know, video company, but that I could get it. All right. We've been talking with Dr. Betty Johnson, president of Bridging the Difference and author of the bestseller, Making Virtual Work, How to Build Performance and Relationships. I know I learned a few things. Dr. Betty, thanks for being a part of all business right here uh, on C-Suite Radio and C-Suite TV. Thank you. Hey, at the end of every show, I like to talk about what I learned. And I like the way she said, frame what the outcome of the meeting is gonna be. Now, I always do that with our team, right? The first thing I say is, what are we gonna accomplish from this meeting? Now, she's saying doing a little bit nicer, And also to make sure you put that up front. You know, I've always put in there our weekly meetings, our our ops meetings, whatever those might be, but it would be great to put the real big topic in there, wouldn't it? And the big accomplishment. So that's something that I learned and it will be a little bit easier for everybody to know so they won't have to second guess or go looking for the agenda and everything else that you gotta have. It would be great to be able to have. That's what I learned right here from Dr. Betty Johnson from Charlotte, North Carolina. And of course, what a great guest right here on All Business with Jeffrey Hay